0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you all for tuning in to episode two of my podcast entitled Journeys into the Land of Whiteness. I am your host today and for every episode, Jimmy Lincoln, and I'm here to continue along my trek of peeling back the layers of white socialization that have been pressed down upon me or passed down to me more accurately for the entirety of my my life, my child and adulthood. And I'm here to encourage all of you all once again, all of my white listeners especially, to attempt to take a similar journey and reflect on your own experiences with whiteness and white supremacy and white privilege and this entire, often unspoken, seemingly invisible system that has been created, that if we are not actively working to tear down, then we are actively or passively supporting. There's no neutral in this thing. And so... For those who may be new to this podcast or maybe didn't catch it in episode one, that's the goal of Journeys into the Land of Whiteness, to be as open and honest as I can as a white adult male born and raised in the South about my experiences with being socialized into a world that's dominated by white supremacy and dominated systemic racism. My hope is by sharing these stories, as I just mentioned, I can inspire other white folks to do the same. I can push myself to grow, push myself out of my comfort levels, and also hopefully reveal to all of my listeners all the myriad different ways that systemic racism is nurtured and fed And propagated and passed on from generation to generation. So that's the, the macro picture of this podcast, journeys in the land, into the land of whiteness. Not just in the land, but into the land of whiteness. And before we get into today's episode, which focuses mostly on my grandmother, the character that she was, Before we get into today's episode, just a quick recap of episode one in case you missed it or in case it's been a while since you heard it, I encourage you all to go back and listen to it, whether you've heard it once, twice, or never at all. Episode one was me telling the story of getting in trouble as an eight-year-old at a summer day camp hosted by the... Parks and Recreation Department of Harrisonburg, Virginia, the lovely city that I called home where I was born and raised. And as a consequence of my getting in trouble, I was threatened by the adults who were operating the camp, I was threatened with being sent to the majority black day camp across town. And the implication was, and this implication was, I shouldn't even say implication because it was made explicit, but the idea was that at this camp, I, as a young white boy, was going to face horrible, terrible, savage violence at the hands of the black campers who would not accept me, would not like me, would utterly detest me simply because I was white that was episode one and mind you that event happened as i mentioned when i was eight years old maybe nine years old when i was young we're talking about third fourth grade and when the black campers being referenced weren't any older than me and we have white adults telling a young white child basically just an updated 1986 version Of that nasty, nasty negative stereotype of black male aggression and black male savagery that's been told and retold for centuries now. Ironically, too, as I reflect back on that first episode, if anything in American history has told us it's that young black boys have a lot more to fear from white folks and from white boys. Than the other way around so not only was I being taught this stereotype this fear based stereotype or this stereotype designed to make me fearful but it was also being done at the same time as a way of kind of erasing the true power relationship between white and black so that was episode one and for those of y'all who are listening, who are regular listeners, we're only two episodes into this podcast, so thank you, first of all, for being a regular listener. But for those of y'all who are regular listeners, who tuned into episode one, you might recall that I mentioned the name of the park where I was going to be sent, where I was threatened as a as a possible destination for my transgressions my eight-year-old transgressions of getting in a, a very mild fistfight over a game of knockball. And the name of that park, the name of the Black Park, for lack of a better phrase, the name of the park in the Black neighborhood was Ralph Sampson Park. And I think the vast majority of my listeners probably know that name, even if they don't know a lot of details about The man named Ralph Sampson. I think he's fairly well known. Very famous, very successful basketball player who was born and raised in Harrisonburg, Virginia, my hometown. He's about 10 years older than me, who attended the University of Virginia on a basketball scholarship, who carried that those basketball teams at Virginia to a level of success that they had yet to see up to that point and would not see again until recently, who then entered the NBA and was off to a very successful career with the Houston Rockets until a series of knee injuries and other other leg-related injuries, leg-related, I guess, leg injuries. I don't know what a leg-related injury is. Sounds like something happens when you're eating a drumstick too fast. Other injuries sapped him of a lot of his ability and a lot of his skills. And I don't think it's unfair to say that for as talented and as smart and as successful a basketball player as Ralph was, that his professional career anyway can be viewed accurately as a bit disappointing. Through no fault of his own, just through those injuries. Nonetheless, the man is still a member of the College Basketball Hall of Fame. As well as the Basketball Hall of Fame, which encompasses college and overseas and professional careers and all that. So quite an accomplished athlete. And as far as I know, has been involved in various forms of coaching and various community organizations. For most of his post-playing career, his career ended early 90s, and ever since that, ever since then, from what I know, he has been involved in coaching at various levels, whether it's an assistant coach at the professional level or an assistant coach at the high school or college level, whether it's working with youth organizations, he's been involved with with mentoring and supporting young people. I don't know a ton about him personally. I don't know if I've, I think I've maybe met him once or twice just in passing because he does, as far as I know, spend most of his time nowadays in 2020 back in Harrisonburg and has lived there now for quite some time. And his family was originally from the Shenandoah Valley. In fact, I think his parents were farmers in the McGackiesville area who had a big family with a lot of brothers and sisters. And so Ralph has a lot of family, a lot of blood relatives throughout the Harrisonburg and Shenandoah County area. So this is the man that the city of Harrisonburg chose to name a park after. A very well-deserved honor. However, like what often happens with black folks, I feel like in this country, is even when they're honored, they're honored in a way that still kind of makes sure everyone knows that they're an other. Their honoring, even, is sometimes segregationist in nature. So, for instance, the park that's named after Ralph Sampson is in one of Harrisonburg's few predominantly black neighborhoods. Now, you could argue that makes sense because Ralph himself and many of his extended family grew up in that neighborhood or at least spent part of their lives growing up in that neighborhood. So in that way, it's very appropriate. And I'm not necessarily complaining about naming that park after Ralph. But why not name other things after him? Elementary schools, middle schools, streets. Things that allows the entire city to celebrate Ralph instead of just putting him off in a neighborhood that most of the city of Harrisonburg either doesn't realize it exists or consciously kind of avoids. But we see that all the time where, you know, when when cities get a street and they rename it Martin Luther King Jr. Drive or Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. They make sure that that street is in a black part of town. And once again, that's a great thing. But wouldn't it also be pretty cool to see a Dr. King street in the whitest part of the whitest cities in America? Wouldn't it be cool if there was an elementary school in Harrisonburg named Ralph Sampson Elementary School? Or something that that showed that the entire city, not just the black neighborhood, celebrated and supported Ralph. However, maybe we're not there yet. I digress. So, you might be asking why I'm even talking about Ralph in this park. Okay, great. There was a park named after him. It had a lot of black children there. Attending this summer day camp, I was threatened to get sent there and get beat up by these black children. Great. But it goes even deeper. My grandmother, who passed away in the spring of 2019, at the ripe old age, I believe of 97, which still blows my mind. Like, how the fuck does anybody live to be 97? But my grandmother had spent most of her adult life as a kindergarten teacher in Harrisonburg. And it just so happens that she was Ralph Sampson's kindergarten teacher. And I cannot tell you, as an adolescent, as a child, as a teenager, even now as an adult, how fucking cool I think that is. And I don't know why I think it's so cool other than I think it's just that thing that all of us do, whether we admit it or not, where we get a little starstruck. And we try to find ways to connect ourselves or our family members or ourselves through our family members to people who are famous or were famous or people who are well-known. And so coming from a city that most people in this country have never heard of, that most people in this country never will hear of, like most cities, and not having anything particularly famous connected to me and my experiences. The fact that my grandmother had played an integral part in the development of a, at least at one time, world-famous basketball player was just, is just cool. It just puts a smile on my face. I love that shit. I think it's really, really cool. However, the way my grandmother described her time as Ralph Sampson's teacher is yet another example of how whiteness is passed on. And how whiteness, along with the notion of what it is to be black, is taught to young children, particularly in my case, young white children. And I guess that's something I should have pointed out in episode one, although I think the story from episode one made it pretty clear. But as we culturally and socially teach young white people about what it is to be white and the power and the privilege and the superiority all tied up in that, we're also teaching them about what it is to be not white. And often we're teaching them about what it is to be black. And so every single one of these stories, including today's, is not only a lesson in how white people are told and taught how to be white, but it's also a lesson in how white people are taught and told about what it's like not to be white. And today's story is a perfect example of that. My grandmother love love her, loved her. She has since passed on. I don't know if love dies when one of the, the recipient dies or not. I don't have that's a deeper conversation than this podcast is ready to tackle, but I love my grandmother. However, she could be, for lack of a better word, quite traditional in her views, or more accurately, she could be racist and I don't mean necessarily passively racist in the way that all white people are because we're caught up in this system of white supremacy. I mean even actively racist. Now, she was much, much too much of a Southern lady, or at least thought of herself as a Southern lady, to be actively racist in a way that would be seen as imp excuse me, impolite or rude. So once again, just like with with my parents and many other white people who helped raise me, I never heard her say the N-word. But she would make comments maybe about those people. And she would make other little comments on the slide that, that made it clear the older you got, the more you thought about it, the more you understood the way whiteness works and white supremacy works, it made it clear that she certainly believed white people were superior to black people. Now, she was a a good Christian woman. She was not a bad woman by any means. She was an educator who, more than any other human in my life, believes in the power of education. So her racism didn't prevent her and, in fact, might have encouraged her. It didn't prevent her from being benevolent towards black folks. That's something we don't often talk about, this idea that, that that white people will simultaneously look at black people, at least in a macro sense, but sometimes on an individual level, as inferior. And then because of that, that feeling of superiority and because of that implied inferiority that you think the other group has, it then encourages many white folks To kind of take the blind side approach, to kind of take that benevolent approach, that white savior approach. Where we're gonna lift these poor savages, lift them up. Either as police officers or social workers or, or even people who donate to charity, but especially as teachers. We're gonna, we're gonna save these black folks. Because they, they truly need saving. We're not going to save them from white supremacy or racism because we're not going to actually address that. We're going to save them from their blackness and teach them how to be more like us and therefore more successful. That's often what happens in my experience, and I'm sure I've even been guilty of that as well. When when we get later in this podcast, deeper into some of the episodes where I'm starting to begin my career as a as a teacher, we're really going to explore that white savior complex that I think many white liberals, white progressives have, whether they admit it or not. And I think I was certainly guilty of possessing that, and maybe still am guilty. Anyway, back to my grandmother. The Georgia-born Southern belle who loved education, loved children, although kind of in an old-fashioned way, like not like in a modern way where she liked having fun with them, but loved. She did genuinely have a soft spot for children. But who also carried with her some very problematic, some very, like I said a second ago, some very racist views. And white folks love to do this when we're talking about relatives. And we even do this with historical figures like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. We love to excuse, excuse, sorry, not excused. We love to excuse racists from the past with this simple One of these simple phrases. Well, that's just how it was back then. Or it's just how she was raised. Or everybody like that back, was like that back then. Some kind of phrase that basically lets the famous person or the relative, whether they're alive or not, off the hook. And as much as those phrases might speak to some kernel of truth, i.e., yes, many people, you know, my grandmother was born in the 1920s, I believe. Many people at that time, many white people, were not only racist, were actively, loudly, vocally racist. The 20th century version of the KKK kind of is at its height in the 1920s, you could argue. And yes, that is just how it was back then, that that racism was not only a thing like it is today, but was actively encouraged also true. But in making these excuses, I don't think we're really trying to be historians. Or when we talk about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington being slave owners, or how the majority of our antebellum presidents were slave owners, some of them even while they were president. When we look to make excuses, A, we're not totally being historians because there's always a, always been a significant number of people who were opposed to slavery and racism in this country. Namely, the victims of being enslaved and of racism, black people themselves. However, there were also white people, and we're not always taught about this in school, who expressed, if not anti-racist views in the 17 and 18 and early 1900s, at least expressed views that were not the norm that we like to think about in terms of every white person just being racist and being okay with it. So for one, when we make these excuses about our ancestors and about famous people, we're not being a hundred percent historical. Let's make that clear. There have been people opposed to slavery and even people opposed to racism since slavery and racism were a thing in this country. That's the first fact. The second fact is when we make those excuses, like I'm sort of making for my grandmother, but not trying to because I'm feeling a little guilty talking about her But when we make those excuses, what we really want to do, I think, as white folks, is just stop the conversation. We don't want to talk about our grandmother's racism or our uncle's racism or our great great grandfather's racism or our father's racism. Or like I said, in my specific case today in this podcast, my grandmother's racism. Because if I talk about her racism or anybody else in my family's racism, then I think the fear is... We're going to have to confront our own racism. We're going to have to confront what those people, even if they have passed on, what they may have taught us. And so I think that's one of the reasons why white people love that excuse, oh, that was just how it was back then. Or, you know, she was from born and raised in Georgia. What do you expect? It kind of is designed, I think those phrases are designed to put up this wall. So that we don't have to actively engage with, well, why was it like that back then? Or how is it still like that today? Or it wasn't like that for everyone back then. Or if your grandmother or grandfather was like that, did she pass that on to you? And if so, what do you have to say for yourself? And if not, then share with us how you avoided being socialized like the rest of us. Like it just opens this can of worms that a lot of us white folks, and I'll include myself at times, are not comfortable addressing. So I'm going to try to avoid that. I love my grandmother. I'm going to say it in the present tense because I think that's appropriate, passed on or not. Love my grandmother. The older I got, the more I came to appreciate what a complex individual she was. And in many ways, what a badass woman she was. Like, this is a woman who went to college in the late 1930s. This is a college-educated Southern woman. That That just wasn't common in the first half of the 20th century. This is a woman who was always unafraid to tell you what was on her mind. So I love my grandmother for many reasons. This is a woman who, and we'll talk about her later in some other episodes, has been incredibly generous financially to her children and their children, her grandchildren, a.k.a. me, in supporting them as they buy houses and pay for their educations. This is a woman who's done a lot. Who was not only a teacher, but a member of Harrisonburg city council was the first vice mayor, first female vice mayor in Harrisonburg history. Woman who was done a ton. Lover. She was racist. I'm just going to, I'm, yeah, I'm going to have to come out and say it. And as I said before, not just in that passive way that all white people are racist, including myself, but I think actively at her core was racist, thought that the racial groups in America were not equal and that white people were superior. And not only do I know that from various comments she made as I grew up, I know that when one of my cousins got married to a black man, shoot, almost 20 years ago now, it it created a gigantic issue in our family because my grandmother was very unhappy about this, this wedding. And was going to refuse to attend and was threatening to write people out of the will and and all of that. So I I can be pretty confident in saying she was racist. But I want you to hear that doesn't change my love for her. And I think white people, we need to be willing to do that, right? We need to be willing to say, yeah, I know I love my grandmother or my grandfather or my parent, but they were racist. Or they are racist and therefore I need to call them on their shit. You can love someone and call them on their shit. In fact, that to me is one of the best ways to show someone you love them. By calling them on their shit. And in this case, their shit being racist. So here to tie it all together is how my grandmother, career, lifelong educator, how she told me about being Ralph Sampson's teacher. Now, mind you. I just mentioned a few minutes ago how much I love the fact that she was his teacher. Because that gave me a Kevin Bacon-esque connection to Ralph Sampson. That's like two degrees separation from a basketball Hall of Famer. That's what's up. I don't think I have any closer connections to anybody, even remotely as famous as him. So I reveled. In the idea that she was his teacher. And from time to time. I can recall asking about being Ralph Sampson's teacher. And without fail. Without fail. If I asked her about teaching Ralph. And by the way, everyone in Harrisburg calls him Ralph. You don't need, there is no other Ralph. You don't need his last name. Without fail, if I asked my grandmother about teaching Ralph. She would smile and say, yeah, I taught him in kindergarten. And then she would pause. And, man, I wish I could do her voice because you talk about a syrupy, thick, molasses, southern accent. Like, y'all are hearing my accent. You're like, man, that boy's country. She, My accent got nothing on hers, but I can't even pretend to imitate it, so I'm not going to try. So when I would ask her about Ralph, she would tell me, yes, I was his teacher. And then she would pause. And then, in her sweetest southern drawl, would, without a doubt, invariably, and I know this happened more than one time, would make sure she told me. But you know he wasn't very smart. Let that shit sink in for a minute. Much like my story yesterday, yesterday, right? You get the punchline, and then I'm going to pause and just let you hear it. I'm going to repeat it one more time. I would ask my grandmother about her time teaching Ralph Sampson in kindergarten, and she would invariably respond, yes, I taught Ralph, pause, but you know he wasn't very smart. What in the fuck? What in the fuckity fuck is that? Talk about how whiteness is perpetuated, how white supremacy and negative stereotypes about black men, once again, unfortunately, just like in episode one, how negative stereotypes of black men are conveyed to young white children. My grandmother did it in, in what, seven words, eight words. Now, mind you, it is incredibly inappropriate, in my opinion. As a teacher, as a lifelong educator myself, almost 20 years in the classroom, it's pretty inappropriate for me, in my opinion, to talk shit about any of my students. I'm not saying occasionally you don't vent to people that you can trust and that you love, but my students are my family. And so if I'm going to talk about them, I really, really try to be positive or or say nothing at all. So if I was my grandmother, I think... in the best course of action could have been, yes, I taught Ralph, period, end of conversation. If she didn't have a single good memory, then that's fine, she didn't have to share anything else. But that's not what she did. So mind you, talking about someone's educational abilities and academic and intellectual abilities when you've been their teacher is kind of inappropriate in my opinion, but becomes even more inappropriate When you're talking about the academic abilities, the intellectual abilities of a kindergartner, of a five-year-old, of a six-year-old, forget about race for a moment. Although race plays a big role in how she talked about Ralph, I'm positive. But forget about race for a moment. Who the fuck is out here hating on five- and six-year-olds talking about, yeah, but they weren't very smart? As if we're completed products at five and six. As if developmentally where you are at five and six is necessarily where you're going to be at 15 and 25 and 35. As if people don't develop differently in different stages. As if you can even tell all that much. But clearly my grandmother thought she could tell. And she, as I mentioned, made it very clear. That Ralph Sampson was not very smart. And she based this knowledge, at least her implication was this knowledge was based on her observations of him as his classroom teacher while he was in kindergarten. Now, I'm convinced that this was also her teaching me about white supremacy. And in this case, teaching me about white supremacy via the perpetuation of a negative stereotype about black people, specifically black males, and their lack of intellectual ability. Because mind you, Ralph Sampson has a degree from the University of Virginia, one of the best public schools on the East Coast, if not in the country. And certainly his athletic ability is what got him entrance into the University of Virginia. But it's not what got him a degree. But my grandmother never mentioned that to me. Never once, despite the fact, or maybe perhaps because of her and my grandfather's love for the University of Virginia, especially its at athletic programs. Never once. Did she mention to me that he had a degree from the University of Virginia? Anytime I asked her about having been Ralph Sampson's teacher, the answer was always the same. Yes, I taught Ralph. And she, if if I'm being fair, probably said something like, yeah, he was a nice kid or a good kid. I'm not positive, but that sounds like her. But what I do know she always included was an assessment of his intellectual abilities. And whether she knew it or not, and it doesn't really matter. White people got to get over this, what their fucking intent was when it comes to racial matters. Whether she knew it or not, what my grandmother was telling me as a young white man was that the most famous black man that I knew was not very smart. And that's all she was telling me. It might have been a slightly different message if she had gone on and on about her time as Ralph's classroom teacher and shared with me anecdote after anecdote so that maybe his lack of intellectual ability, which, to be 100% honest, who knows if that was accurate or not, but let's assume it was. Let's assume maybe he wasn't the brightest student. But if she had also told me about his compassion and his creativity and his warmth and his humor, then maybe I walk away from those interactions with a complex image of what a black man can be in my head. But instead, all I ever got was a single sentence assessment, but he wasn't that smart. And when that assessment is repeated to you over and over about the most famous black man you know, then I've got to believe that it has some power in shaping how you look at black people as you grow up, especially considering the fact that he was a famous athlete. And we're going to look at black and white people in sports and athletics and all those stereotypes. That's going to come up even some more in some later episodes. But considering the fact that we have such a weird combination in this country of adulation and hatred towards the black athlete, especially the black male athlete, although Serena Williams can probably tell you that adulation slash hatred thing extends to black women as well, it was an especially powerful and hurtful message for my grandmother to tell me about Ralph Sampson not being that smart. In fact, as I was Thinking about this podcast, I even dug into the archives of the New York Times because I wanted to be certain that Ralph had indeed graduated the University of Virginia. I knew he had attended. I knew he had played four years of basketball for the University of Virginia, played at an incredibly high level, at an all-time legendary high level. I knew all that. But as we all know, it's possible to go to college as an athlete or not, and spend four years there and walk away without a degree. However, I found an article in the 1983 New York Times, sometime in May. I'll have to look it up exactly. If you want to know more about it, please feel free to email me. And this article described Ralph's graduation and how he received a standing ovation from all the graduates in attendance. And this tells you what kind of college basketball player he was. That the New York Times is going to write a small story about his graduation tells you that that he was a national figure. But in this story, in the New York Times in 1983, they also mentioned that he had a C-plus average as he received his degree, I believe, in rhetoric and communication. And that struck me. As the journalistic equivalent of what my grandmother did to me as a boy growing up. Yeah, Ralph graduated, but he had a C plus average. Now mind you, I would guess that the majority of people who graduate college have a C plus or perhaps lower average. Right? C plus is like 2.7 and above, 2.75 and above. Not nothing to shake your head at. <coughs> Excuse me, especially if you're playing full time college athletics, especially if you're playing full time college athletics while attending one of the most prestigious public universities in the country, especially if you're playing full time college athletics, attending one of the most prestigious universities in the country and graduating on time. Ralph did all of that, dang shit about what I just said that's anything but impressive, but the New York Times had to throw in. The C-plus grade point average. Just like my grandmother had to throw in, but he wasn't that smart. And that was all that the New York Times mentioned about his academic career. They didn't talk about research papers he had done, professors he had worked with, seminars he had attended. Once again, they didn't give you this fully whole complex picture of him and then include his GPA. That would have been one thing. It was just that coded dog whistle, C-plus average. But he's not that smart. Yeah, I taught Ralph. Yes, Ralph graduated from the University of Virginia with a C-plus average, but he's not that smart. Just fascinating to me how my grandmother in the New York Times, without any kind of coordinated effort, were both working from the same white supremacist playbook. And that playbook basically filled with all kinds of stereotypes about black males and about black male athletes and their intellectual abilities and about black men who succeed or black people who succeed and about the white fear of that success and the white fear of an intellectual black person. All of that was being conveyed to me by my grandmother. Now, my grandmother also used to tell me one other story that has nothing to do with Ralph Sampson, but also is a fascinating story in about how whiteness is conveyed. And that story about a little five-year-old girl from Atlanta showing up in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and showing her love and her plot pride and her blackness will be the focus of our next episode. So if you want to hear more stories about how my grandmother taught me about whiteness and how she used children from her classroom, black children from her classroom, to teach me about whiteness, please tune in to episode three. These episodes are only going to get better. I apologize for the language. If you're listening to this and that language is inappropriate in your household because you're maybe... A teenager or younger, I promise you, it's okay to cuss. It really is. And I really just use the language for effect. But I hope no one feels offended or feels like they can't listen to this podcast because occasionally my language veers off into R-rated territory. But as I told all my listeners on episode one, I want this to be a conversation. And I can't have a conversation with my listeners if I'm reading from a script. So occasionally my language... He's going to be a little blue. As always, I appreciate y'all's time. I hope all of my listeners can take this episode once again as an inspiration for them to self-reflect, especially my white listeners. I need y'all to start reflecting, to start telling these stories to yourself, to each other. Please, please reach out to me. That email address is never going to change. James Lincoln three, one, three at gmail.com. Once again, James Lincoln three, one, three at gmail.com with your questions, your concerns, your own stories, pretty much whatever you want to send to me, try to be respectful and cordial, but put it all on the table so that you can become part of this conversation we're having. I wish y'all the best. Tune in for episode three as soon as you can. Peace and love. I'm out.